Ruth 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. All right, thanks, Louise. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for uh, being with us today, uh, virtually and from afar. Uh, glad you guys could join us uh, as we have been these past uh, th- three months uh, or so. Uh, Spen said, really excited to, to be back with you guys uh, virtually. Uh, or sorry, not virtually, uh, in person in a, in a few weeks. We're uh, gearing up for that and, and praying for it uh, and, and can't wait. Uh, we are in Ruth 3, 1 to 18 today, uh, as you just heard from Louise. Uh, if you want to turn in, any, in a Bible or a phone app you have to all of chapter 3, which is today's text, uh, that would be great. Uh, this should be on screen as well on Facebook if um, you are uh, watching us there. Uh, but just to recap where we've been so far in this series, Ruth is, if you're brand new to the book or the Bible, Ruth is the story of a Moabite woman who is a widow, and she essentially finds love again in Israel. Uh, Boaz, uh, who you also heard from in this uh, last section, is the hero of the story, essentially, in a lot of ways. God is the ultimate hero, but Boaz, on a human level, is the hero of the story. He is the one who's been noticing Ruth. He has been showing her undeserved kindness uh, and lots of it and making it easy for her to work. He's basically uh, giving this woman a job and making it very easy for her to make money and to be provided for, and Naomi kind of threw her as well. So Naomi, who is Ruth's mother-in-law and the one that Ruth traveled back to the land with after the famine ended and after their husbands died, 
has also identified Boaz as a redeemer. And so we'll talk more about redemption next week, but redemption uh, comes up for the first time in uh, this book today. And so it gets kind of confusing because there's two layers to it. There's land redemption and marriage redemption in this book. And sometimes in the Bible, it's just one of those two. But in Ruth, it's, it's both. And so just for some clarity this week, and then we'll talk about it next week uh, more in more depth. But land redemption had to do with Naomi's husband had this land and he died. When they came back, the idea is a kinsman redeemer in the family can buy it and that would ensure that the land stayed in the family indefinitely. So Naomi and Ruth could kind of continue to benefit from the land and the produce uh, that, it, that it produced. The second layer is marriage redemption, which is the Bible calls leveret marriage. That ensured that a widow had a husband and that a deceased uh, husband's name would continue on after his death. And so the idea here being that an unmarried brother-in-law would marry the widow. And so uh, more on that next week. Uh, in that, if that's kind of confusing, that's okay. But just understand for this week that it's important context for the book. But understand Boaz is a redeemer. He's one who can purchase land. He's one who can marry Ruth. He's one who can ensure ongoing provision on both of those levels for Ruth and by extension Naomi. And so he has the power to grant this kind of security. He has the power to grant this kind of provision. He's already been doing this, and so Ruth's kind of, the, the book of Ruth is a good example of the art of foreshadowing because we've already seen this happen. Boaz has been doing redemption-like things, but redemption proper hasn't happened yet. That's going to happen next week, but it's talked about this week. The dial gets turned up a bit this week as we see the opportunity for actual redemption is coming into view. And so to summarize uh, the part of uh, this story uh, this week, so the part that Louise read, uh, chapter 3, uh, it's, it's a bit odd. Ruth is um, a little clear in the first parts. It kind of gets strange in chapters 3 and 4. And so let me summarize what we just looked at. The passage today begins with Naomi encouraging Ruth to go to the threshing floor. The threshing floor is where the wheat and the barley was trampled on to separate the chaff from the grain. And there's also a big party happening at this time because it's harvest season. And remember, this is the first harvest after 10 years of famine. So not just a party in the fall, it's, it's a party after. We haven't had this for 10 years. This is an amazing party. And so Naomi recognizes this. Of course, it's happening. Everyone recognizes this. But Naomi is saying to Ruth that she should go and she should basically present herself to him. There's this eligible bachelor, Boaz, basically, who is a redeemer figure, you should go and um, you, should, you should present yourself to him. All right, that's, the, that's the general way to say it. It gets weirder than that, of course, but that's kind of the general way to say it. Now, so the circumstances of this whole thing are just, are just odd. There's no way around it. We'll clarify some of this with the gospel in a bit. But as the story goes, Ruth goes to the party and where, where he is asleep on this heap of grain and uncovers his feet, we don't know why, probably to wake him up, which he does. And then it says, behold a woman, which I, I kind of like that phrase. It's like he's saying, a woman, seemingly out of nowhere, look, uh, which is kind of funny. But it, it also isn't too far from Adam in the very beginning of, of the Bible when he says about Eve, uh, behold a woman at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And these are important connections to make because we have these patterns in the Bible that set the genealogical and theological stage 
for a future marriage, which is going to be Christ's marriage to the church. And so these are both happening in the same kind of theological and genealogical line. Have that in mind as well. More on that next week, but I want us to, to be thinking about these things as we go through today and as we see the consummation of the marriage happen next week. All right, but for this week, uh, Ruth says, when, when she goes to Boaz, spread your wings over me. You are a redeemer. And so she's not proposing here, but she's basically saying, if you ask, I'll say yes. If you ask me, I will, I will say yes. And so, uh, it's, uh, and Boaz responds well, but it's, it's kind of a risk for her, though, because it's possible that Boaz would maybe demand her to have sex with him, or he would just outright reject her, and the whole redemption thing would be off the table. And so it's kind of risky for her in a way to do this, but Boaz responds well. He essentially offers her redemption, which is close to a proposal. But the, the hitch is there's another redeemer who's closer to Boaz. That just means there's another relative who's um, more in line than he is to offer that redemption to, uh, to Ruth. And so um, he has to go take care of that first. Basically, he says, let me go take care of this so I can, I can be the one to offer you redemption. It's kind of cool. He's uh, stepping up. He's fighting for her in a way here as well. So we'll, we'll see that happen next week, but that kind of starts to begin to occur at the end of, of chapter 3. Until then, he sends her home with more barley, which if you've been in this book so far, we've seen like he just can't help but just give Ruth grain. It's like he's constantly doing this, um, which is kind of funny too, but, but, it's, but it's awesome. It's very provisional. All right? So uh, with all that said, basically what we just saw, those are the high points, but this is clearly not your typical courtship story, right? I was joking with Aletha last week, my wife, that Ruth reminds me of a Jane Austen book. Uh, and she actually disagreed with me, which tells me I'm the one off base because she's the fan, not I. Uh, but, but I know enough Jane Austen to know that there are some odd courtships in those stories as well. But uh, Ruth takes the cake. Uh, the, the context here, the actions taken, the words spoken, it, it is just, uh, just an, odd, an odd thing. But do you guys know when, when you're reading a book or when you're watching a movie and you come across a very confusing part of the story that you don't really understand, but then you say, well, let's just keep reading and see if it clarifies itself later. Or let's just keep watching the movie and maybe we'll, they'll say something or something will occur that will clarify this confusing part. Well, it's the same with the Bible. Clarity is found at the end of the book, not all the time at the beginning or the middle. And so my, my advice for you, which I'm going to follow myself here in just a second, is that you don't get meaning about Ruth 3 from Ruth 3 alone. You'll never be able to find it. It will just stay weird, and at best you'll kind of, in a contrived manner, force some moralistic lesson into the passage, and it will still feel like it's not fitting and so what happens when we do this, though, when we keep reading the Bible or watching the movie or, or reading the story, the next section we come to in the Bible after the Old Testament history books, like Ruth, is the prophets who use language from the first part of the Bible and spiritualize it. They change it uh, to show us what those things were really meaning all along. Their kind of deepest, uh, deepest meaning was all along. So inasmuch as they point ahead to a more glorious future or a better version of, of these stories. A couple examples uh, we have of this today are in Isaiah 41 and Ezekiel 16. Let me read these quick for you 
This is from Isaiah 41 first, verses 14 to 16, where God says through Isaiah, Fear not, Jacob, or Israel, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel, you shall glory. The second is from Ezekiel, chapter 16, verse 8. When I passed by you, God speaking again to, to his people, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garments, or wings, over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. All right, so the big thing I want you to see here, if this is still kind of confusing, that's normal, that's, that's okay. The prophets are kind of difficult to understand sometimes. But what I want you to see here, the big thing I want you to see is that there is a shift, a marked shift from Boaz and Ruth and a shift from human marriage and a shift from human redemption and a shift from the theme of covering a woman with wings or a corner of a garment to now it being about God and people. Even the idea of threshing is heightened, right? Where we see in Isaiah that, according to him, we should expect in the future a greater type of spiritual threshing. So we'll get to more on that in a little bit in next week too. But the prophets are basically, again, they're taking Ruth 3 and essentially saying, Ruth and Boaz's story is going to happen again in the future. Ruth and Boaz's story is relevant to you because it's about more than them. It's about God and what he is like to us. It's ultimately about Jesus' love for us. Jesus is how God will do all this stuff. Jesus is how God will redeem. It's how God will spread his garment over us and enter into a spiritual marriage covenant with us, which itself is extremely significant because it means that we're saved by love and not by works or obedience to the law. Because marriages always occur, right? Based on love and not on obedience or conditionality. And so the answer then to Ruth 3's oddities is the gospel. But the question remains, I think, in what ways exactly? We've kind of touched on a couple of big picture points here in the last couple of minutes. But the question remains, how exactly is this the case? In what ways specifically does Ruth 3 bring this up? And so I want to spend the rest of our time uh, on three things. So three things off the theological premise that, remember, Ruth is a symbol of us and Boaz is a symbol of Jesus. All right? So the first layer is uh, that Naomi, remember, going back to the beginning, it's harvest time, there's a party, and Naomi tells Ruth to go to Boaz, but this is key, after washing and anointing and clothing herself. So she says, put on a cloak, wash yourself, anoint yourself with perfume, and then go and present yourself to to Boaz. But here's the thing. That's not why she was accepted, right? That's not the the condition or uh, the precondition for her acceptance 
by Boaz. Why did Boaz respond so positively to her? Why did Boaz respond so well? It was simply her posture of humility and the fact that she asked him to redeem it all. And I think we can dig deeper here as well and just assume that it was because Boaz liked her. And it turns out it's the same with us and Jesus. With Jesus, we do not approach him or, uh, or come to him washed or anointed. Uh, in our sin, we are quite the opposite. Our, our sin cannot be covered with the perfume of performance. Better yet, we're not accepted based, of, based off of it or based on it. We are not accepted on the basis of our works, but simply on the basis of asking, like Ruth did, right? Simply on the basis of asking to be redeemed. And so what I think you see then with Naomi is Naomi is a type of Old Testament voice. Naomi says, wash yourself first, then go to God, or then go to Boaz. But, but the, the, the picture here is the idea of going to, to the Lord, right, for, for redemption. Naomi is a type of Old Testament voice. Wash first, then go into his presence. That's precisely what Israel did in the Old Testament. They had washing rituals that preceded entering God's presence. That's what they had to do ritually when they approached the temple. But on the flip side of that, things change. And Boaz and Ruth then are this, even in the Old Testament, they are this glimpse. They are a break of the pattern. They are the break of the, a break of the rules. They are a picture of New Testament hope. And that is that love will surpass conditionalism. That Jesus will wash us. That love will look over our sins. So the idea is we come dirty and filthy, but then we're washed by him. So love will look over our sins. And that, that, that the temple or the law, that kind of hallmark of the Old Testament system, will be replaced by love. It will be replaced by the bloody body of Jesus Christ. And for sinners, that's amazing news, isn't it? That there's a replacement happening here. Not, not like a, an extension or a growing of the old things or a heightening of them, but an all-out change. Do you wash first and anoint first, or does the husband figure do that for you? And what the Bible is screaming to us is that it's the latter. The old ways are fading. The old ways are growing old, uh, the book of Hebrews says. They're beginning to fade away. Even the prophets say that. When new things are spoken of, old things become obsolete. They begin to grow irrelevant. This is new. This is, when the pro- this, is, this is when the prophets essentially here, even though Ruth's not a prophet, it's speaking prophetically. New things are beginning to be spoken of here, and so the old is beginning to become outdated and, and irrelevant. We are accepted by the love of God and his work for us, not based on our washings. All right? The second layer here is, um, has to do with Boaz and his willingness to cover Ruth, so two things, covering Ruth, and then at the very end, uh, or towards the end, he says, I, I will do all that you ask. So it's a very uh, wonderful thing, isn't it? I will do everything you're asking, everything I will do. He promises that, right? So we'll handle those in unison here. So Ruth says, first to Boaz, when, when she wakes him up, Spread your wings, so some translations say corner of a garment, it's the, it's the same idea, wings or corner of a garment, 
spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, this idea of covering biblically, I don't have near the amount of time I need to go through this like uh, comprehensively, but the idea of covering biblically comes with the idea of being covered and protected from our nakedness. And we saw that in Ezekiel 16, right? So there was a naked woman that God saw, went and, and he covered. He spread the corner of his garments over the, the young woman. And, and we see that theme, that motif, come up here as well. But it's not just nakedness. I, I think it's shame too. We saw that again uh, in, in Ezekiel. 1 Peter 4.8 in the New Testament says, Love covers a multitude of sins. So when we talk about covering, nakedness, uh, shame would be a slightly different category, but nakedness is a picture of being exposed, of being um, full of shame over what we've done and who we are at the core. But God covers that. He covers it up. And so we're protected and, and the eyes of exposure and laughing and mocking are taken off of our nakedness and they're diverted elsewhere. And remember, in the Bible, the law does the opposite. The commandments do the opposite. The commandments expose and strip us and lay us bare, but love covers. I was thinking of uh, the story of uh, Noah's sons. You guys remember that story after the flood in Genesis 9, if you've read this before, where it says that after the flood waters recede, Noah, kind of like in Ruth, where there's this 10-year famine and then then they party, sort of like with the flood, there's this massive, like, problem the worldwide flood, and then there's this big party, so he gets drunk, he's kind of passed out, and he's partially naked. He has three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, um, and there's different responses from the sons. There's one son who laughs, Ham does, laughs at his dad, and almost, if he had a camera, he'd be taking pictures and uh, mocking his dad for his ridiculousness and his nakedness. He's exposing his dad's nakedness. Remember that? The other two sons... Shem and Japheth take a garment and by the corners of the garment, sound familiar? The corners of the garment, they lay on their shoulders, two of them, they walk backwards and cover their dad's nakedness. These are not coincidences. The the theme, the motif, the theology of being covered of our shame begins nine chapters in, in the Bible, And Ruth just happens to be one more instance in a long line of the theme of being covered of our sins and covered of of our shame. Now with the sons, uh, again, the contrast is important because one son is like the law and the other two are like the gospel. The law exposes and mocks us in our nakedness. It shows us how much we can't keep, keep the standard. But the other two sons, especially Shem, who is in the line of Jesus, is the one who covers and protects and warms and provides. And that's the line Jesus comes from. That's the line that the crucified Christ would come from and through his blood do that. But all these stories are connected so we would have yet again another instance of this happening. So we, it, it's, its importance would be underscored. But again, like Ruth needs someone else to do the covering, Like Noah, when he was passed out drunk, needed someone else to do the covering. So does the gospel say, we need someone else to do the covering. We cannot do it. And the more we try, the more we're exposed. The more we're made naked. 
The more we try to do good, the worse we become. We need God to act from the outside. And that's why this marriage story, this is a marriage story, right? That's why this is about two people and not one trying harder. It's not Naomi giving a lesson to Ruth and her becoming her maximized self. But it's about Boaz, a third character, who has to come in and do the actual act of redeeming. All right? Then Boaz, it says, uh, if within this framework then, this means Boaz tells us, the character of Boaz tells us, indirectly but intentionally, remember what he said, that Jesus will always say yes to our prayers for protection. Remember in um, John 14, 13, these are the words of Jesus where Jesus says this right before his death. If you ask anything in my name, it will be done for you. Sounds a lot like Boaz, doesn't it? When, when Boaz says to Ruth, everything you're asking of me, I will do, that, that is a, it's a, it's a forerunning echo of Christ. And so with Christ in mind, if, if we ask, like Ruth to Boaz, but in a greater way, if we ask anything in Jesus' name, and, and that means if we ask things that are in accordance with his will, if we ask things that, that he would get fame from them, if, if we depend on his power alone and not ours, it will always be given. If we ask, he will say, especially when we ask for forgiveness and redemption, he will answer, I will do for you all that you ask. Don't ever take that for granted that that is true. We might struggle with not knowing what the will of God is for our life in other areas. That's part of what it means to be human and Christian. We struggle with the idea of God's will and what does he want for me. But not with salvation. Not with big picture things. If we ask to be forgiven or cleansed, if we ask to know the gospel better, if we ask for more trust in him, if we ask for victory over sin patterns, if we ask to love Hiawatha Church more, if we ask for more of the Spirit in our lives, he will always say yes, always to that. And so his promise here, his words, his teaching, his consolation should build our faith, right? And also kind of guide the things we ask for, guide the way we pray. Now, there aren't other things to pray for, it's just we, we can be less sure of his answers with those things, but not with these big asking for redemption type requests. And I mean every day. I'm not talking about people who are not Christians yet asking for redemption once. I mean every day asking for redemption, every day asking to know him better, every day asking for more of his spirit, every day asking for the power of the spirit to slay our sin. He will always say yes, and so we're called to, to keep in step with that. Our confidence based on his name, not our amount of faith or how strongly we pray, but, but, based on, but based on him. We essentially say, Jesus has to do this. I, I, I'm asking for his work. I can't do it. God always honors the, those, those types of prayers. All right? Third and final layer here is the, the, the odd theme of uncovered feet at a threshing floor. All right? The third layer then has to do with the setting. Remember kind of our guiding principles here, Boaz is like Jesus, Ruth is like us. So, so by the setting, 
the idea of setting, I mean Ruth is, Ruth's actions here. So to me, when I read this, remind me of the women who later in the story would interact with Jesus in a similar way. So in other words, in Ruth, Boaz's feet were uncovered. In the gospel accounts, women anoint Jesus' feet with their tears and with expensive perfume. In Ruth, Boaz is asleep on a mound of grain when Ruth finds him. In the gospel accounts, uh, women go to visit Jesus' body in a tomb, but of course he's not there. So, and this I think is the bigger issue. Last week, if you weren't uh, here listening, we, we talked about how Jesus in John 12 refers to himself as grain that dies and falls to the ground. So it can, with its death, produce more fruit. In Ruth, grain is one of the main characters, so to speak, in the book. It's a clear picture of Christ himself, of our ultimate provision, the bread of his body. And so, like last week when we likened Ruth to, um, we likened the idea of Ruth beating out the grain to Christ's body being beaten before his crucifixion, so here is Christ the threshed out grain on the floor the one who was trampled on for our sins. And remember, that's what threshing threshing was all about. It was about trampling on or stepping on the wheat to separate the chaff from from the grain. In Psalm 56.2, which is the words of Christ beforehand, uh, Jesus says here prophetically, my enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. And on top of this, uh, and back to the idea of uncovering feet, it's so, so important to see and so amazingly beautiful that you have Boaz being uncovered and Ruth being covered. Did you guys see that in the book when we, when we read it or even just now? Boaz's feet are being, part of his body is being uncovered, exposed, but, we are, but, but Ruth is being covered by his garment, right? Or covered by his figurative protective wings. The contrast is stark, and we're supposed to see it. The idea here is that it's the same with us in Jesus. The way, then, that we are covered and saved from our sins is by Jesus becoming uncovered for us, stripped naked on the, on the cross. In uh, Matthew 27, 28, it says that Jesus was stripped. Right before his crucifixion, they stripped him, they beat him, but they stripped him naked uh, before he was, he was crucified. I don't think I have control here anymore, so I'll just hope you guys can, can see that. All right, but, but by his uncovering the ideas, by him being put to shame for us, we are forgiven. Our sin is covered. We're not exposed anymore. Uh, he, he shows his love for us in, in that he's willing, he's willing to be embarrassed so the focus of the bullies can be diverted to him uh, instead of us. It, it's it's kind of like this week when a lot of people are talking about, and we're seeing this play out, but people are talking about cancel culture a lot. Uh, cancel culture is, is when people, fearing the anger of the rest of the mob, divert the anger onto someone else so they can feel safe and not like looked at and not kind of exposed that's one way to understand it anyway but sort of like jesus takes on the brunt of cancel culture he took the the ultimate cancel label by a twisted and demonic and selfish world 
Uh, he took our, our anger. He died in our place. All that, also that anger would be diverted from us. God's ultimate anger against sin would be, would be diverted. And shame would be diverted onto him and, and, and away from us. This is textbook substitution. And, and that is why we need to see these these motifs in the Bible. And, and I hope you guys have been seeing this in Ruth, and I know we always do this, but, but I hope you've been seeing this, that we're not just talking about a vague notion of love. We can do better than that as Christians. We have to. Our Bible demands it. Love is specific. And God is not just loving the world, like in John 3.16, although that's gloriously true. He's loving the world by sending his son, right, to perish so we might not perish. And in this case, this is how God is showing his love. He, this is how he actually redeemed, by being threshed and trampled on, by being uncovered and exposed. And so whether it's the grain in the story or whether it's Boaz, we have things taking harm. We have things uh, taking harm. We have things figuratively dying. So whether he's exposed or trampled, and he ultimately was, right? We must have the, and this is, this is important, so we have the right view of Christ in our minds every day because we're so prone to forget this. Boaz is a glimpse, and, and Jesus is, is the reality. All right. There's one more layer to this. Everything we've been saying today is, is that is the gospel. That this is what Ruth is all about, is this gospel. Jesus' death in our life. That's what Ruth 3, 3 is about. There's one more layer to this uh, to say, and that is, I've kind of been saying it, but salvation, there is salvation for receiving this good news, but there is a penalty for rejecting it. Uh, Matthew 3, 12, this is John the Baptist speaking about Jesus, but look at the same kind of Ruth 3 language in what he says here. So speaking of Jesus... His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. All right, so another way that the Bible handles this theme of threshing is by using it as an image for judgment. So the grain here are Christians. Note, by the way, how uh, John the Baptist spiritualizes the story of Ruth 3, or spiritualizes, or kind of takes even more into the realm of relevance and spirituality than the prophets do into this area of, this is, this is about Jesus now, right? This is about him coming into the world to save people, but also to, uh, to judge the wicked who will never repent. And so grain in this metaphor are Christians, gathered like the church to him, but chaff are non-Christians who refuse to repent and turn and believe in him, and they're the ones that are burned and sent to hell. But God, here's what God is saying with all of this in mind. See, we have, we have this message and this warning, but here's what he's saying. Let my son Jesus be threshed for you on the cross so you can be gathered in. Let him be trampled for your sins. The alternative is that we will be threshed we will be judged. We will be trampled on in hell. But God in his love is patient with us. He's willing to save us by grace. And we see a glimpse, an imperfect but beautiful glimpse of that in Boaz. 
He's willing to save us by grace, himself being harmed, but his patience, and this is good, will eventually run out. It's, it's good for a good being to eventually have patience run out when it comes to evil, right? And not to just kind of let it go on forever. His patience will eventually run out in the end, but, but either, this is the two options, either Jesus takes the hit, the threshing, the beating, the uncovering, or we do. This is the idea. This is the gospel, but also the call to believe and to trust in him and to cling to him for dear life. So believe now, repent, be saved. And, and I would say, like Ruth, or uh, sorry, unlike Ruth, unlike Naomi's encouragement, come unwashed, come unanointed, even uncovered, so you can be covered and washed and perfumed in a way, anointed by the work of Jesus Christ. Rest in his love, be remade, and do not trust in yourself or your works ever again. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much, God, for this gospel in Ruth 3. Thanks for the journey it's been as a church. We look forward to the next two weeks, uh, Father, but thank you for how the Bible helps us interpret it, that the prophets pick up on this theme, John the Baptist picks up on this theme, and makes it very clear that this is about something more than Boaz and Ruth. This is about God. This is about Jesus. This is about a spiritual marriage of God to sinners made possible by the spilt blood of the Son. Jesus, thank you that you were threshed, you were stepped on, trampled on for us. You were uncovered also we could, so we could be covered. And, and thank you for screaming that message to us in every genre imaginable in the Bible. Even nine chapters in, in Genesis 9, Ruth is just one more link in the chain. Uh, but God, uh, we're, we're so forgetful. Father, um, help us to come to you unwashed, uh, impure, to be washed every day. Um, even though we have security and salvation, our, our life is, is a constant turning to you uh, to be um, reminded of your grace and, and the goodness of your love. Help us to worship now and in response, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.